Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. There are certain topics that we tend to get a lot of questions from you guys about. And one that you mention a lot is Bay Area Rapid Transit. You know, BART. One of our first stories ever was actually about why BART is so loud. And ever since, without fail, every month or so, a new question comes in about BART. How did they build the underwater tunnels? Why does BART seem to have such a hard time keeping their escalators working? There are empty newsstands. What is the history? Why did BART take so long expanding into Santa Clara? And why didn't it go to the North Bay? There are ads right next to the third rail. How on earth did they change those out without getting electrocuted? This week, I lured transit reporter Dan Brecky into a recording booth to see what he could tell us. I'm your host, Olivia Allen Price. Y'all, it's time for Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. All right. Well, so Dan Brecky, I brought you in here because we want to do effectively like a BART special. We get a ton of questions about BART and you are, as far as I'm concerned, the BART expert in my life. Oh, okay. Well, I'm flattered to hear that. How long have you been covering transit and, and paying attention to what BART does? Well, you know, I've paid attention to what BART does since the mid-70s. That's when I moved here, and I started taking BART right then. I I think my first BART ride was in 1973. I went to a Warriors game when the system was no more than a year old. What was your first impression? When I came out here, BART was sort of this rumor. It had gotten national coverage, right, because they were doing all this crazy stuff. They were going to go 80 miles an hour. That was much faster than the uh, commute trains went in Chicago. It seemed space age. And uh, the shape of the cars and the configuration of the cars, that was different from anything um, I had seen. And so, yeah, it was a cool experience. And the other thing was it was, you know, it was kind of cheap. Listen, there was a time when the short hop rides were 25 cents. Actually, that was just in downtown Oakland and downtown San Francisco. 
although a quarter got you a lot farther in 1973 <laughs> than it does today. I mean, things are really different. I mean, listen, the other thing about the system was it was not heavily used. In the past 10 years, the ridership just skyrocketed when the economy came back after the Great Recession. And that's really one of the chief reasons we've had such a crisis of crowding well, I think that kind of teases up to a couple of these questions that we got from listeners. Um, so this first one comes from Mark, and he wants to know, in its nearly 50 years of existence, why has BART taken so long to extend into Santa Clara County and only nominally protruded into San Mateo County and never expanded into any of the North Bay counties? Well, there's a complicated history to that. But I mean, the, the simple version is that um, Bay Area counties had the choice of opting into BART in the early 60s, and uh, some opted out. Santa Clara and San Mateo opted out. There was some talk about uh, going up to the North Bay, going to Marin. That history is even more complicated. There were engineering studies that showed it was feasible to put a track below the roadway on the Golden Gate Bridge and get the trains over. There were three engineering studies that found that was fine. One sponsored by the Golden Gate Bridge District did not support that idea, but that was on the table. And when San Mateo County opted out, the backers of BART then no longer thought that the Marin idea would be feasible. So they sort of pulled back on that. And in the meantime, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge District never really liked the idea because back then, BART would have been competition for the service they were offering. So BART has only gone into Santa Clara and San Mateo in recent history because the people in those counties decided they wanted BART. Well, I want to go back to the early days of BART, the beginning of BART. We got a question from a listener who wants to know, how did they build the underwater tunnels for BART? So this is one of the great epics of uh, the BART construction story. Um, it took years and years to design the system that they used. And the tube was built in sections. They would build the sections in pieces that were longer than a football field. And then when they were done with all that work, they would tow the section of the tube out into the bay. And then they would lower the tube, which was sealed at both ends, down to its location, uh, which was, you know, of course, very precisely marked. And divers would join the sections of tube together one at a time. So that joining them meant they were being welded together and bolted. And the tube was resting in a sort of shallow trench that had been dug before the uh, sections were brought out. So it took about three years of actual construction to get that all together, and, and that's the tube we have today. The other thing, the other aspect I find fascinating is that, you know, you're actually going down pretty steeply on both sides of the bay where you, you, you start up on the Oakland end, you're, you're above ground, say, 50 feet, and then you, you plunge under the bay. This thing is 130 feet below the bay. And, and then you have to come up on the San Francisco side to connect to the uh, tunnel at Embarcadero. The experience as a rider is pretty flat. You kind of feel like you're just going straight across. No, that's right. There are a couple places where you actually change elevation under the water, and um, it doesn't really feel like you're, you're going up or down, but that's exactly what you're doing. Let's get to our next question, and now I want to go sort of down into the BART stations. We have a couple BART station okay. questions. So this one comes from Brad Meyer. I've noticed that there are empty newsstands at some of the BART stations. 
What is their history, and why are they closed when they could provide jobs to vendors and income to BART? I'm asking because other transit systems around the country have newsstands open in their stations. So we came down to Bart's Montgomery Street Station to uh, answer Brad's question, and we're standing looking at where one of these kiosks stood. Listen, the deal with those kiosks was it was mainly an outlet for the Chronicle and Examiner, the two San Francisco newspapers. Both are still in existence. They used to have a joint operating agreement, and so vendors would deal both of them. The kiosks were actually very limited in size, so not really amenable to a much bigger business. But the the main thing that's happened is, you know, the newspapers uh, don't circulate by selling on the street anymore or selling in transit stations. And that's due to the Internet and it's due to smartphones, where people are carrying that information with them instead of having a, a paper medium. Um, in terms of whether you know, these could be repurposed for another kind of business, well, maybe, but again, they're small, um, a bit smaller per- perhaps than the ones that you see in New York and Chicago and some other cities. But the other thing is those kiosks generally sell other kinds of goods, so food. And BART generally inside the stations discourages consuming food. We know that from a very recent famous incident where somebody was detained and cited for eating a breakfast sandwich at the Pleasant Hill Station. Those are the main considerations and why these kiosks just aren't a going thing anymore. But there is one sort of cool thing about this kiosk. If you actually walk over to where it used to stand, here at the eastern end of the Montgomery Street concourse, there's an audio effect that if you stand exactly where the kiosk was, there's kind of an echo chamber here. And uh, it's ripe for experimentation. Hello. <laughs> Enjoy riding. And uh, now we have to go catch our train. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our next question. I'm Jay Quigley, and I live in Oakland. At West Oakland BART Station, there are ads right next to the third rail. How on earth do they change those out without getting electrocuted? I ask this question because every time I look at the third rail, I get terrified. Well, you know, the third rail is something you don't want to touch under any circumstances. It's very high voltage and uh, instant death or at least extremely serious injury if you do come into contact with it. So what they do is, um, you know, BART is shut down for a part of every day. Trains really stop running around 1 a.m. And then there's a window of time between 1 and 4 in the morning when a lot of maintenance activity takes place. They shut down the third rail. I was told by uh, Jim Allison at BART that they call it laying down a blanket, meaning, you know, making that area like as if you're covering the rail with a blanket to make it safe. They're not physically doing that. And then uh, once the uh, rails are de-energized, then the workers can work safely there. Do they de-energize the entire system? No, they can sectionalize it. All right. You've been very generous with your time. I have one last question for you. And it's kind of a culmination of three questions that we got asking about escalators and elevators. Mm, Right. It seems like they're constantly broken. There's always announcements about why they're, you know, broken at X station or Y station. These listeners want to know, are those announcements made when you're, you know, at a station miles and miles away? And why does BART seem to have such a hard time keeping their escalators working? My name is Dan Skolachenko, 
and I live in the Sunnyside neighborhood of San Francisco. Well, there are a variety of reasons that escalators fail. You know, some are exposed to weather. Uh, some are exposed to abuse uh, of various kinds. There were escalators that were being used essentially as restrooms. Lots of garbage winds up uh, dropped on, uh, on certain escalators at some stations. The other thing is that, so they get a lot of use, but the escalators have also been very old. And I know that in one case anyway, the original manufacturer of that uh, of those escalators has gone out of business, and to do things like um, you know simple maintenance it means Bart has to go out and hunt for spare parts. And if the things break down altogether and they have a, a serious mechanical failure, they have to find somebody to make some of these major parts. So at San Francisco 16th Street Mission Station a few years ago which is one of the places that had these really old escalators. And they put up a sign saying, uh, this unit will be out of service until, and then there would be a blank. It was out of service so long that somebody came along and wrote, the rapture. And, um, <laughs> and I started to track this thing ab about how long it was taking. And it was, it was more than six months that it was out of service. And it turned out that BART actually had to find somebody to make a part. So that's the past. The future is... A lot of these escalators are getting completely rebuilt. They're not just getting overhauled. Brand new escalators are being installed. It's an expensive project. So that's the answer to one part of your question. The other one was about um, why the elevator announcements. Um, there's a, a large part of BART's ridership that depends on elevators to get you know, into the station, to the platform, and that kind of thing. And so, I mean, on one level, it's just a courtesy announcement. But on another level, it's sort of a crucial announcement for people who have no other way of accessing a BART station than using these elevators. You know, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I feel like this is part of their responsibility under the ADA to give people at the very least a heads up. I mean, even better, anybody will tell you, is to actually have the uh, elevators running. One thing I was thinking about, like, because we, we get so many questions about transit, and I kind of just puzzled over the years, you know, what is it about getting around that is, you know, inspires so many questions and people feel so passionately about, you know, you, you go anywhere and people are talking about how they get around. And I think especially now, you know, maybe more than ever, like, it's because that is how we most interface with any government body mm. is through transit. Uh, it's what we see every day, but it's also how we interface the most with sort of our neighbors and our community. It's where you see, you know, kind of get a read on, on what's happening where you live. I, I think that's absolutely true. That's really all that, uh, well, that's not all. There's, I mean, dozens of more questions about BART in, in the Bay Curious uh, hopper that we could probably go on for okay. months about. Um, but is there anything else that you came wanting to talk about today? Well, um, no, not really. <laughs> not really. No, this is fun. We'll answer a few more of your BART questions in our February Bay Curious newsletter. It gets sent the first Wednesday of each month. You can sign up online at baycurious.org slash newsletter. We've got a link in the show notes, too. Also in the show notes is a link to a podcast made by our sister podcast, The Bay. They covered BART etiquette. You definitely want to check that out. Today's episode was produced by Jessica Placek. Thanks again to Dan Brecky for taking the time to speak with me. Our question askers this week were Brianna, Brad Meyer, Jay Quigley, Mark, Dan, and Eric. 
Bay Curious is made by KQED in San Francisco. I'm your host, Olivia Allen Price. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just... What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.